This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Sound Gear, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. My guest today is a lawyer by day, dog trainer by early morning and late night. Douglas Spala is his name. His unique journey through the hunting world is giving him a powerful voice in the world of conservation. You're about to find out why. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton. As always, is our producer. Today, we are joined by Douglas Spala. Douglas, I know that you have a busy career, so I, I really, you know, I, I value that everybody gives us an hour of their time every week that we have on the show, but uh, you're typically in a courtroom right now, and you're taking some time out of the day to talk hunting with us. So I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, where are you located right now, Douglas? Oh, yeah, thanks. At the outset, Travis, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. This is an incredible experience. I'm very excited. As a big fan of the show and the podcast, this is this is a, kind of a gleeful moment. But I am located here in Kansas City right now. Okay. Well, it's always a gleeful moment for us to have people that are excited to be on the show. So I really appreciate that. Can I just ask, uh, I try to ask a lot of people when they send us messages or comment on things, you know, what, what is it about the show that you like or what keeps you coming back? And obviously you have a love for, for dogs and for upland bird hunting, but is there is there certain topics that we cover that you like more than others, or what can we do to make this show? Besides, obviously, having you as a guest on it, what can we do to make the show more entertaining for you? Um, I, currently, I think the show is very, very uh, fun to watch. I I enjoy the topics, the range of topics you have, from convers- difficult conversations to fun on pi- private private and public lands. All of it seems to be to really just make me excited about the future of conservation because it's nice to see the different paths people take to get involved in hunting and conservation. And you being able to tell those stories and travel different places is very exciting. And as you know, I I enjoy traveling around the country too and chasing wild landscapes. So being able to see that you guys are in Montana one weekend and the grouse woods the next weekend and coming back to my home state of Nebraska is just really exciting to see. Yeah, well, I consider it just a real honor, truly blessed to be able to see the different places, meet people like you uh, through the television lens. We've done that for so many years and now through the podcast, too. I mean, the the TV schedule that we have, we filmed 13 episodes as a full season for us, uh, but we get 52 weeks of the year to have podcasts. So I certainly have met a lot more people. I did get to meet you at pheasant fest this last oh gosh when was it this year march March. i'm I'm already done yeah yeah so i I did meet you there but i've i've followed your journey online um and you have also done an interview with bob st pierre on the on the wing podcast which is the pheasants forever quail forever podcast just it just extraordinarily touching uh to hear you open up about your journey um i would I would really recommend that if anybody listening to this podcast right now has not listened to that show with Bob, that interview, 
um, to do so. And I, I want to say, Doug, was it December last year or November when you recorded that with him? It was in October and it was right okay. after, right after the grouse, my first trip in the grouse was up there. Okay. Yeah. No, it was so, November. Sorry. It was November. My apologies. Yep. Okay. So you, you really shared about your story and like you mentioned, you, you've enjoyed listening to other people share theirs, but if, if somebody, I'm sure there's some crossover, some have already listened to that interview, but I'm sure there's some that haven't. Would you mind kind of taking us back in time and, and op- I mean, if you're comfortable opening up again about your own personal journey, I think people listening today uh, would, would really appreciate that. I know I did when I heard it. So uh, you, you live in Kansas City now, but that's not where you grew up. Can you take us back to your growing up years, your early years in life and your family life? Of course. So I was adopted when I was around 18 months old by my parents. Fred and Pam. I was born in Texas, so I like to say I have Texas blood in my veins, but I grew up in Nebraska and I have two younger siblings that are both adopted and three older brothers who are my parents' biological children. So we kind of think of ourselves as round two because there's two sets of us. But growing up in Nebraska, hunting was a big part of who we were and a lot of my free time. Well, I played sports and enjoyed other things outdoors. Hunting was a big thing to me. Um, I know I don't remember my first hunts. I just remember the first dog I got when I was 12, Shadow. And that's what really started driving that passion for the outdoors, training dogs, running black labs, and living in these wild spaces in my free time. Growing up, it's was, you know, I had a lot of friends and I grew up in a good community, but being in a multiracial family, there was some difficulties growing up. And in particular, I never really saw people that look like me on TV, on ads, in print. And while that never really bothered me as a child, now that I see it more and more and that I'm able to also do that right and show my experience and share my story, it's, it's, very, it's a very touching thing to me because I know that there's other people out there that are younger and getting into this space or older and getting into this space. And to see other people that look like them, I think is an impactful moment for them to say, don't be afraid, enjoy the outdoors, they're for everyone. And that's kind of part of my mission internally is to just show people that we're not all the same and that those differences are what can really bring us together and produce positive results. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So your parents were white, you are um, African-American and your brothers, were they, what nation or what race were your brothers and sisters? My older brothers, all three are white, and my younger brother and sister are black. So we're okay. um, a nice little hodgepodge, but it, that doesn't mean we love each other any less. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you ever ask them why they chose to adopt you? I've never really asked why. I just know that we had some good family friends who ran an adoption agency, and they also adopted some multiracial kids in Another incredible success story is where one of our best friends growing up, he's a neurosurgeon over there in John Hopkins. And it's just like, we're all so fortunate that our parents gave us these opportunities to succeed in the world. And mm. this just alternate, better, if you will, shot at life. Mm. And I know my parents, after having their first three children, were kind of finding a way to maybe give back. You know, They had the resources and the opportunities to do it. And that's kind of what led them to us. I imagine they're just wonderful humans. <laughs> incredibly, yeah, incredibly wonderful people with lots of love and 
passion to give to us, but also really focused on setting us on the right, the right path forward. And that's, I hope that's what my writing and perspective and character shows that my parents really tried hard to make sure that things were good for me, but also that I'm, I should be in a position to give back because I had a lot of advantages in life that, but for them, I might not have. So it's important to say, okay, you had a good shot. You've done well with your career. Now it's your turn to help the people behind you and make it easier for them or just inspire them to do things for the betterment of society as a whole. Most people don't like to give their age, but I think it, it, uh, is, is it okay to ask, how old are you? <laughs> I'm 32. I'll be 33 in August. So coming okay. up here on the next one. So you, um, <clears throat> you've been hunting for how many years now? I mean, I'll, I'll just say I started at 12 because that's when you're legally allowed in Nebraska. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't carry gotcha. a gun, at least. Um, so a couple of decades now. So for, I mean, for two thirds of my life. So you, you and I, uh, talked briefly just a little bit ago about this, but, um, gosh, it might've been two years ago already, a year and a half ago, I had Darrell Smith on and he's, he's a black man that is a passionate dog trainer and bird hunter down in Georgia. And we talked about what it was like to be a black man going to hunt on plantations and going into places. And his story just, I mean, it shook me is hard to fathom some of the things he's gone through and some of the concerns he has and has had going into the field. Have you ever been in those positions before where you just felt uncomfortable or, um, you know, being out in the field or I, I mean, you, you said you listened to his interview, right? Yes. And it was, uh, incredibly impactful. And that was regardless of what people think that was an inflection point for the country where things kind of were viewed at under a microscope. And Darrell now, well, full disclosure, Darrell is a great, great friend of mine. We we talk almost every day. We trade jabs about our dogs because he runs the pointers and I run the labs. And he's <laughs> yeah. And it's cool in this outdoor space that although our skin color is a similarity that we have, there's so many more things in life and our passion for the outdoors, conservation, storytelling is what really binds us together as friends. But not as the thing about where Darrell lives is he's in the deep South and a lot of the hunting he does is on plantations. And I talk all the time to my friends and colleagues when I travel about Darrell and how cool the things he does and how inspiring they are to me to continue to put mm -hmm. my face, my face and myself out there. But you have to understand when you say the word plantation in so many places, it has this negative connotation. And that's where he's hunting. Now out here, I get to hunt on the plains or I go out west to Montana and hunt the grasslands. And there's not as many people out there. So that kind of impact or that negativity doesn't really surround what I do. Now it's, it's out there and present. I try not to let that bother me too much, but nothing to the level of what he has. And, and there's an entire quail culture down there that's separate and apart from, I would say, up here in the Great Plains states. And part of this is it's enjoyable to see that culture because it's, I'm sure you've been down there a few times. It's just, it's so different. And it's every facet of the quail culture is, seems unfamiliar to me, but it's, it's fascinating because we're chasing the same birds I'm chasing here in central Kansas. It's, it's mm -hmm. pretty cool, I think, but also you have to remember there's certain 
aspects of that that are historically based, and you have to be able to understand that. I, I think of you as as a role model in a lot of ways, and Darrell too, for um, for young kids that want to do what you're doing. And do you feel that as a, something that you have maybe without trying to have become, I mean, do you, do you, you've, you had to over the last few years have learned a lot about yourself and what you're doing in, in the outdoor space, right? Yes, I have. Uh, and I hope that I am a role model. I would like to be, um, what that is kind of a story to be foretold still, but I, I would like yeah. to be, and I, I try to put myself out there in the most positive light I can and give people this other perspective. Cause there's people in the country that will relate closer to Darrell than to me. But for the ones that do relate to me or the types of hunting I do or the style of hunting I do, I hope to be a role model just to show the people both older and younger than me that you can do this too. And while I have a lot of success, I also have a lot of failure. And I'm not really afraid to fail at some of the hunting things that I do, but I think it's easier for someone else to envision them themselves doing that same thing when you have someone that you can look to for guidance, support, information or just basic inquiries. Have you had people reach out to you? Yeah, it's been more and more since I started writing and it's I I really enjoy it cuz I there's questions on how to teach a dog to sit to advanced retriever drills or whether they should go to private or public for chasing wild birds or just asking me how my day is and what kind of legal work I do and I I love I love working through those questions and talking to people. And I think social media to me is, is a great place to have those conversations to start. I mean, that's how I started talking to some of your folks over there and it's such a, now there's a lot of negativity surrounding social media, but to me, it's just like a place to build a community out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it could be as positive as you want and you certainly can find a lot of negativity on it too, but it, it allows us to become, you know, I, I like to think of the upland bird hunting world as just a really tight knit community and that people might give each other a hard time about dogs or their dogs or certain breeds, but we all really love dogs and we love watching them work in their own unique ways out in the field. And for you, that's taken you into some pretty incredible places. Um, you, you did a would would you call it a documentary or a series on a, raising a bird dog in a city? Yeah. Uh, how, for, how would you Very fortunate that? to do that for Pheasants Forever. So going back to kind of the beginning, I grew up in Nebraska, went to undergrad at the University of Nebraska, then moved to Chicago for law school. After I finished law school, my father got diagnosed with cancer. It was pretty bad. So I moved home to be with him for a while. And as he worked his way through that, he kind of told me, go out, go back to Chicago, begin your legal career and bring a dog with you. And he would work through the cancer treatments and I would build this bird dog in Chicago. And when it was ready, I'd come home for the fall and the winter and hunt with him. <laughs> and at the time- Sounds simple enough. Yeah. <laughs> in hindsight, it's easier to explain than at the time because there's a lot of emotional burdens there. But it was a great thing for me to do. And I didn't really think much of it because it was just go to Chicago, become a lawyer, bring this beautiful black lab with you and do it all for your father, who's given you so many opportunities at life. So I did it. And um, that can be more on a later topic. But 
I got to write that series, a five-part series for Peasants Forever on training a bird dog in the city. And now there is a multitude of advantages and disadvantages you have to that. But it was fun to show people that you can live in a dense, populated urban area and still train a bird dog to a high level. And I, I enjoyed sharing that story because if you think about the country as a whole, a lot of our population centers are big cities and you don't really see a strong connection between Chicago and hunting. But to me, I, I, I did a lot of hunting and I also worked for a big law firm. So just showing people you can balance both of those things in your life, I think is a positive thing. Absolutely. It's interesting. We've had several dog trainers on over the last couple of months on this show. And some of the feedback that I've gotten from listeners when we talk about taking their dogs out and working with them or uh, having pigeons or birds to work with, um, the, the one topic that has come back several times or one question is, what do you do if you don't have access to those kind of places. I don't have space to do that. How can I continue to train my dog without having that? Well, you learn obviously firsthand what what you could and could not do. Can you shed some light on your trials and tribulations training in the city? Yeah. So for the most part, I really think that a lot of people can do that basic obedience within your house walking around the block in a small public park or green space. And like we said, early in the morning and late at night where there's not a lot of people. But yeah. then when you're ready to do the introduction to birds, introduction to gunfire, it's important to find that pro trainer or that training group kind of on the periphery of that urban center. I, I mean, I lived in downtown Chicago for about three years when I had Shunka. But on the weekends, every now and then, once a month or so, I'd go find a pro and go train with them with birds and stuff. But they would always be happy that I would work so hard on the obedience. So when you get that bird stuff going, you're you're ready to go. But remember, it's I think an important life lesson, and that is time is a valuable asset. So that five to fifteen minutes every morning, five to fifteen minutes every evening of obedience and bumper work is important because when I go out, when I travel an hour and a half south of Chicago to train with a pro, like that's time is is very important because I only have so yeah. much of it. it. But it was like. There's things you can work on without live birds and without gunfire. And now I can't speak for the pointing side, but for the retriever side, I I, I mean, that's all I had at the time, but Shunka turned out to be a pretty good dog. Can you, can you explain those things you worked on? Because I agree that that five to 15 minutes every day, multiple times a day, if you have it before you leave for work, maybe during a lunch break or when you get home, that goes a long way in training a dog. Yeah. So we'd start, sit, stay, come. Those are our basic commands for the retriever. And then we'd go on to bumper work. We do force fetch, bumper work, marks, cold blinds, water work, and just moving our way up to this progression. And it took us a while, but if you think if I spend 15 minutes on a Monday and I do this for six days straight, I mean, I'm doing pretty well while, while this dog is growing. And the other thing is a lot of Urban areas have nice water. While you can't do complex marks, I mean, she was a pretty good swimmer because we we did all of our water training in Lake Michigan, a large body of water. <laughs> wow. What what were some of the challenges you faced being in downtown? Other dogs, traffic, um, 
access to good green spaces and in Chicago weather for the most part too was always kind of a burden but those rainy days were perfect because no one would be out anywhere so we would grind through the rainy days with all of our waterproof gear but after she really started growing I would say by the time she got to one year it was cool because we found this empty lot to work out in and we would have people that would come around and kind of watch us do our setups and help us with marks and then they would also try to do some of the stuff and the cool thing about being in a densely populated area, and this is what one of my friends, Rehan, tells me, is like there's kind of sometimes this subculture of hunters that you don't necessarily see, but they're out there. So while I lived in Chicago, one of my best friends while I was there had a Vishla, and he lived in the same building, one floor on top of me, and we got connected because one day he saw me working out with the dog in the morning. And I, I thought that was like, and he's still one of my really good friends today, and I go to Chicago and hunt a preserve with him all the time. But the difficulties are, you know, it's tough to blow a whistle in the morning at 6 a.m. and not get some sort of complaint or people mad at you. Or <laughs> a couple of times the police came up on me and told me stop stop blowing the whistle. And really? Said, the club outside my house is open to 4 a.m. and they're keeping me up. I think 6 o'clock is fine. But yeah. I mean, all the other loud noises that you have to deal with. <laughs> Trains, and, planes, and automobiles, but the whistle was the one that got me the most attention. Yeah. And unreal. Off leash stuff is always an issue, too. And while I trusted Shunka off leash when we were doing our marks and stuff, not every dog can do that. Yeah. I would I would imagine you had a lot of people say, Wow, that's a well-trained dog. Most people don't even realize, you know, the dogs running around them that may not be trained, you know, to see one, you know, that you trust, you can leave off leash like that probably is an eye opener, right? It is. And it's also cool to see people respond to say, one, why is that dog so well-trained in these densely populated areas? And two, because that's a hunting dog. And initially, if you were to go to a place like that and say you're a hunter, I think there's this connotation of camo and shooting things and this rough, rough, appearance but they're like oh that man has a nicely trained black dog and he hunts and travels all over and i always love that because it's a way to kind of bind those two worlds it's saying like you may think hunting is one thing but when you see this dog do this perform so well in these training setups or when they i report back on our successful hunts they'd be in awe of how cool it is to see this dog do it's this thing it's bred for and i i always thought that was an interesting connection as a way to kind of give a more palatable approach to the hunting community. Did you ever have anti-hunters approach you that knew you were training a hunting dog? No, I don't. Not that I recall, but I don't know if you have a local dog park or something that you go to, but after you get going for a few times, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you just get to know everybody. And maybe there's people that would just avoid me for what I'm doing, but I, I never had that like anti-hunter crowd, mostly because people would appreciate the dog work itself. So mm -hmm. while you could dislike what I do as a hobby, I think it's harder to dislike this a dog performing what it's bred to do. Yeah, I I think you watch them and you just can't help but respect it. Yeah, and I think the only real slight we had is some people would ask me why I didn't rescue a dog as opposed to adopting or picking up one from a high-end breeder. And I would just simply say the things that I need it to do aren't always available and the genetics I'm looking for are easier to 
improve upon when you start with a, a well-bred dog. And to most of the hunting community, that, that makes sense. But people who are outside, you have to kind of make that explanation. Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma Trailers tow gear like a dream, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. Hey, hunters and shooters. Whether you're in the field, at the range, or on the factory floor, hearing is the key to your success and safety, and you need to protect it. The all-new Phantom from Soundgear is here to help. Phantom delivers benefits no other product can. Dynamic digital noise protection for your ears. Seamless compression automatically suppresses noises at dangerous levels. Stream calls, music, or other audio wirelessly from your phone. One overnight charge keeps you powered all day long. And Phantom is custom molded to your ear and is sweat and waterproof, so it's comfortable all day. Soundgear is American-owned and operated and a proud sponsor of Pheasants Forever. Go to soundgear.com and see how Phantom or any of the other Soundgear products can change your life by protecting your hearing. That's soundgear.com. Nutrisource Pet Foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most. It's called Kombucha. Nutrisource Kombucha, inspired, of course, by kombucha, is a savory, meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kombucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, beef, and chicken, and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. So you're a lawyer, you're, you became a dog trainer, um, and then you started writing about it. When did you decide to add writing into your life? So when I lost Shunka in December of 2020. Um, Shunka was that promise to my father to bring back that dog if you survive cancer. And that was a really difficult thing to go through because she had an abscess. I lost her in 30 hours and I kind of got pretty depressed after losing that because, you know, mm-hmm. when I was in Chicago, she was the balance to my life. I I worked in a big law firm, I built a bunch of hours and coming home to her and every day after work, waking up to her in the morning and training, that was like such a rewarding experience I had. When I lost her, I just spiraled. And fortunately, some of the folks at Peasants Forever, especially Nancy Annisfield, who used to serve on the board, reached out to me and said she enjoyed hearing about my story, about training dogs. And asked me if I was interested in writing something. And I was like, well, I could, but I don't have a dog to write about. And that was kind of in the past. She goes, well, you can write about it, but you should also get another dog. And I was like, hmm. 
it's too soon. And this would have been January, so one month after Shunka died. But in February, a nice litter was born, and I got a new pup. And I thank Pheasants Forever for that, and that kind of has driven my devotion to them. But also, I thank Nancy for really kind of pushing me off my stoop and getting back into this world. And this new little pup that I got is Nakutope, which is Comanche for my fire. And I picked that name with the help of Comanche Comanche Language Department to kind of show my devotion to building out more writing, more media, more experiences to people, and also telling them that I've been re-inspired or reinvigorated to really pursue this conservation mission. So Hmm. that's what got me started, and it's been rolling. Well, now you serve on Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's board of directors. Um, did you ever in your wildest dreams think that you would have this role with such a prominent organization? Never. Never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined that that position would have been available to me. And now, while I'm proud of my success in the legal field, learning more every day. I've been in complete awe being a, sitting on the board of this organization and just amazed by the work of the Habitat organization. It's it's an incredible opportunity and I take it with the full responsibility to oversee the organization and do what I can and do my part. And my fellow board members are some amazing people, professionals, and it's it's incredibly rewarding. And you obviously have a long relationship with Pheasants Forever. So to be up here is, is, is I stutter because I just am, I'm always in awe that this is a, the place that I'm at right now. And it's, it's, a, it's a very nice place to be. How does that come about for, I mean, I have questions. I have to imagine a lot of, you know, chapter members around the country wonder the same thing. How do you become on the national board or how do you get that position? There's not many of them available. No. And um, through my work as a federal attorney now in the conservation world, drafting legislation, enacting policies, securing mandates, and some of the other things I do on the federal level, because you know, in the conservation organization, NRCS, EPA, Fish and Wildlife, the Corps of Engineers, that I think my acumen in that space really helped put me in touch with the people at the PF to really say, okay, here's someone who works on the government side of things that understands legislation, policy, and how to best take advantage of these opportunities from our federal, state, and local partners. And I think that was a big draw to them from, from me. Because that's a skill that you don't normally see. Because, I mean, I can show you a ton of habitat projects, and the partners are all federal partners along with state partners. And someone who can navigate that relationship is important. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the skills I bring. My youth in the space is definitely one. And as your organization, the Habitat Organization, the Ducks people are really trying to find that next next wave of conservationist devotees. And me... Being represented, I think, is also important, but also just meeting the folks. I met with Howard a couple times, and when he was in the area, I'd go eat lunch with them, and we'd talk about the roles and responsibilities of the organization, and I kept telling him, Nancy helped me get this, and the PF folks helped me get this new dog. I want to do everything I can 
to give back to an organization that's given me so much happiness following a time of darkness. And whatever I can do, whatever skills I can offer, whatever policy things I can act, I'm I'm devoted to this cause. And I think eventually <laughs> it lined up to where, okay, maybe he can give us other things that we don't necessarily have. And I think that's what led to the ultimate um, choice to move on up. So I'm listening to you tell all of this information. There's so many, there's so many layers to it. And I have all these extra questions that pop into my mind. So can I just, I'm just going to like popcorn throw all that right. at you here, but has your dad survived his cancer? Yes. He survived two bouts. He had oh, prostate and then immediately non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but he survived. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, what can you, uh, maybe you can't explain this or maybe you can, but what is your role then as a lawyer for the federal government? Or can you explain what you're doing and what you're working on? Yeah, I can explain it briefly. So I do the real estate for the Kansas City District of the Corps of Engineers. That's roughly two thirds of Kansas and Missouri and about a quarter of Nebraska and Iowa. And what I oversee is real estate projects, the real estate side of all the projects, whether that's raising levies, working on military installations, or helping out our core lake projects. I do the real estate work, buying and selling a property, disposing and acquiring a property, figuring out titles, um, negotiating with public and private enterprises. So it's just the real estate side of that. Okay, Those skills marry up well with conservation initiatives because it's those same folks that are working on those same types of projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people may or may not know that a lot of the Army Corps land is open to public hunting. Correct. And I enjoy a lot of it. And that's, that's, been, a, that's been a fun experience over the last couple of years is to u- utilize those public lands that are managed or owned by federal entities and seeing what kind of opportunities are out there. And that mm-hmm. also means BLM land, NRCS land, all those are our similar partners of the same branch that we are under. And it's, it's nice to work with those people on the different projects too. So knowing what you know about those federal lands, what concerns you about what you know about it? The biggest concern is the, 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 the access and lack of it. I mean, in, my, in the Kansas City District, there's 18 lake projects, and those lake projects comprise, are comprised of approximately 16,000 acres of public lands. But if you look at the geographic size of states like Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, they're massively massive. They're, ma- they're big land masses that are all ninety plus percent privately owned, and that means a lot of people. While each lake project is very big, a lot of people don't have access to a lot of stuff by proximity, economic reasons, or knowledge. And that's that that really bothers me. And we didn't touch on it a lot, but each of my dogs gets. A native name. So this last, this current one is. I was going to ask you about that. That's one of my questions coming up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the way I grew up hunting a lot of the reservation lands and in, in Nebraska, South Dakota, Kansas, I, I, as a philosophy, believe that a lot of Native American tribes were original conservationists. And as a result, I think that this drive to pres- preserve, enhance, and develop more habitat is crucial to the hunting space, 
to the environment and to the betterment of society. I could, I, if you walked with me for five blocks in Chicago and it's nice out in June, summertime shy, everyone is sitting in those green spaces because people just enjoy the outdoors for the most part. Mm-hmm. So building that habitat or building just the green spaces, I think is, is, is so important to our overall well-being. So I'm, I'm, that's the lack of those is what really bothers me. Well, and you, you've got to see, um, firsthand, you know, being in such a highly populated area without nature, without green spaces. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because a couple of days ago I was talking with somebody <clears throat> and he, he said, I read, we were out on a lake in a very peaceful area and he was talking, there was another guy in the boat and he goes, you know, I recently read this study and the number one association with happiness in the world is not money. <laughs> it's not even close. <laughs> that does not lead to happiness or joy, but nature. Being oh, in nature really? <laughs> is was was ultimately the number one, followed then by love, intimacy and love, those two things together. Um, and then somewhere later on down the list was money. But it just shows you the 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 impact that our wild spaces can have on people. We live in it. We go out there, we follow our dogs in it. We escape. I'm sure you got a lot of stresses in the courtroom. You can escape from, you know, the corporate world for a little bit and just walk in grass and in, in trees and forests, depending on where people are listening, where they hunt and live. But just being out there is such a key to a quality of life. And, you know, you're being able to, to connect both of those together. I'm, I'm certain has had an impact on other people. And, um, you know, you did mention the names. I I was watching an episode of Yellowstone. Did anybody else connect that to you? But your dog's name, Shumka, I heard that on the show and I was like, Oh, dog, you know, like I already knew, what that was before I even saw the episode, but uh, it's the only two places I've ever heard of the name. Yeah, and uh, that that was a special moment on Yellowstone. We're a big we're a big fans of Yellowstone, but to hear that on there to me, I mean, even now it brings a tear to my eye because that was like such a special moment to see that dog that meant so much to me, so much to my father, and so much to my path in life. In her name, that I thought was unique at the time. Uh, be on Yellowstone. That was such a cool thing. But I will caveat that and say, when I was in Chicago, we had some friends that were from Croatia. And Shunka in Croatian means ham. So that is also an interesting fact for you. Ham? <laughs> yeah. So if H-A-M? You Google, yeah. So if you Google S-U-N-K-A, huh. Croatia, it's, it's all these ham. So it's funny because I thought I had this unique, cool name for my dog. And I brought her out when, she, when we first got her to our friends and like, oh, ham? And it's like, um, no, dog. I'm like, oh, no, no, in Croatian, <laughs> that means ham. Like, oh, well, wow. that's okay. <laughs> but no, so, that Yellowstone thing was super special and very touching to see. And I don't know, in my heart, 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 deep down, I think that maybe somehow they read my stuff. But in reality, I don't think they did. Well, maybe they did. You never know. <laughs> I, I've also had somebody long ago tell me that you never know who's listening or reading what you're writing or what you're saying 
and it matters because it might affect somebody's life some way. So yeah. and I try to remember that. Thing that I, that's part of the, the philosophy of when I write and work with photographers or videographers is like, I don't know who's listening, but if someone needs this, here it is for you in its purest form and the best that I can do to put out to the world. Where do you write? Where, is, where can people read your writings? So I write for Pheasants Forever. I've also written a couple articles. I have another one coming out for Ducks Unlimited. I have a couple articles on Gear Junkie. And then I built my own website to kind of host all those spaces at douglasspala.com to give people just a little more background. It's nice to have an Instagram profile, but not everyone's on Instagram. So I built the website Mm -hmm. to show people kind of the projects I'm working on. And there's a contact on there. People like to talk and ask questions. And that's, that's where I'm at right now. I'm sure, I hope that more come down the pipeline, but those are the three main spaces that I'm at right now. Oh, I'm, I'm positive. There's more coming down the pipeline for you. Douglas Spala is Douglas S P A L E dot com. That's uh, that's how you find that website. And then your Instagram is actually Shunka's name. So can you spell that so somebody can find you? Yes, it's uh, Shunka O-War. So S-U-N-K-A underscore O underscore war. And while her name is Dog, we put the O-War on there to kind of commemorate or connotate those Lakota warriors that roamed the plains where we enjoyed hunting. Growing up, My one of my fascinations was with Crazy Horse, and that was the same. He roamed the same areas that we enjoyed hunting growing up. How old's your dog now? Kutope. She's uh, 16 months. 16 months. So this has been a fun way to build, but also write about it to show people, here is if you want to build a retriever or a bird dog, Watch us, see us do these things and take something from it or, you know, be inspired by it. And I have to imagine there's a lot of excitement for this hunting season. You know, that year and a half year old dog heading into the field. There's, you know, still a puppy, but they know a lot more at this point. And I'm sure you've spent a lot of time with that dog. So what excites you the most now with that pup heading into this season? I think so. We're almost finished with the basic stuff and working towards the transitional training, hopefully by the end of July. But also, I'm super excited to do a lot of good sit-to-flush work this summer because I'll be going down to South Georgia and hunting with all those broke dogs down there. And if you have some friends up there, too, that run some really nice pointers and setters and such. Mm-hmm. And when those dogs point and then do not move on a flush, having a retriever, you kind of feel like you're, I don't know, behind in the dog quality. So working that sit to flush is going to be exciting for me. But also doing some dog work with horses is an also a new thing that's kind of come to my plate le- recently because those big running dogs are, I'm, I'm fascinated by pointers. I just, I don't know much about training and building them, but I don't like to hunt without mine. So having this new pup work with some horses just to be able to keep stride and then hang with those big running dogs is are two things that I'm super excited to work on this summer. So every once in a while people reach out and they'll ask, how, how do you know which training program works best or which one would you recommend? Uh, and there are quite a few out there, you know, I have a pointing breed, so that's where I focus on. But how did you find your training methods and your approach that you ultimately have gone with? 
Yeah. So I think at first it, you need to figure out what type of dog breed you want and what type of dog you want out of that category. So I like black female Labradors that are all proven field trial lines and they all come from the same breeder and that breeder puts his dogs at the same trainer that I work from, but also knowing like what you, what your hunting style is. So I don't, I, I would love to have a field trial champion retriever, but that's, that doesn't really work well with my hunting style. So you have to be able to understand like what you want out of that dog throughout its life. And also maybe what that dog is capable of too. Uh, and I think that's the, those are important variables to start with. Knowing what you have, what type of bloodlines you have, what type of programs that those bloodlines run out of, and their level of success. And then from there, you can really start deviating more if you want, but kind of just knowing what you're working with, I think, is important. Hmm. Um, I, I want to bring us back into the role you now serve with Pheasants Forever on the National Board of Directors. Um, what does that mean? What do you work on there? Who are you serving with? And what is your role specifically? Yeah. So generally speaking, you're just your role is a fiduciary to the organization to oversee the operations of the organization, whether that's the strategic plan, education outreach, community building, the marketing side. So just understanding each of those I, for simpler concept, each of those buckets and what each bucket kind of does. But also in my role, because I'm in such a geographically advantageous area like Kansas City, I really like to get myself out in the community and seeing what our local chapters are, our local boots on the ground things are doing. Because in Kansas City, I'm six hours from the Twin Cities, eight hours from Chicago, 11 hours from Georgia, 12 hours from parts of Montana and Wyoming, and really seeing what everyone else is doing to kind of really understand the landscape and how the decisions we make at the board impact things on a local level. Can you give us an example of what those decisions are? Because, I mean, I, it's a, it's, I know you do a lot and there's a lot going on, but I think sometimes um, we, we can answer you know, that kind of a question with such a broad um, broad answer that it's nice to know or get a feel for, you know, like what specifically do you have to do? What decisions do you have to make and come to an agreement on with, with the other directors? Yeah. I think the one that's probably the biggest hurdle right now is as anyone who is familiar with the organization understands that Howard, our lifelong CEO is soon departing. Mm -hmm. And Howard has both been an incredible force for me, but also an incredible face for the organization. So going through the process to understand the strategic plan of what the organization is going to do in the future, but also trying to find the person to continue moving this ship forward is a, is a vitally important process. So selecting the new CEO will be part of the board's position. But also there's other things like how do we engage more, how do we engage a younger audience through education and outreach? So when the committees present us with proposals, we kind of use our professional experience to gauge like, is this the best way to engage a younger audience? Are these particular events that we host with our local chapters or at the national level, 
the best way to gauge engage an audience? Or for where we met, what is the best route to put on a pheasant fest? What type of events should occur at the pheasant fest? What type of people and guests should be there? And now that's a lot of staff, but those staff support, uh, present that to us for kind of a final approval and guidance on is the, are these six individuals appropriate for the public land stage? And we gauge that our interest, they gauge our interest, but we also provide our feedback in our professional spaces. So when they asked me if I would present on one of the stages, did they have to approve that to you? Um, I think it came with the qualifier of whether or not I would be on this podcast in the future or not. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody told me that. You weren't supposed to know. (laughs) This is all voluntary. No, but uh, so I do wonder sometimes how many other uh, directors are on the board with you? 14 other ones right now. 14 other ones. So, and you guys are all over the country, right? Yeah, all over the country for the most part in, in all different sorts of professions. So, being in that room for me, listening to different folks talk like the guys from the South or the people from out East talk about different things and understanding their deep, intricate knowledge of their own spaces, whether it be Perina or Georgia quail hunting or precision ag, and then having everyone else who does the high-end ranch sales talk about different things is fascinating discussions. But it all leads to do these initiatives put more habitat on the ground? And it's it to me, it's 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 kind of a beautiful poetry, if you will, to see how these people have performed so well in the professional spaces, but are all devoted to the same cause. And like I, like I say, conservation seems to be a mission or initiative that can unite a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Is this a volunteer position that you serve? Yeah. Yep. It's a purely volunteer. So I'm so happy that I have this opportunity to volunteer. And like I said earlier, but for Nancy and some of the other board members and Howard, I don't know if I'd have this pup, but also like because they helped move, they did did me a solid, if you will. Mm-hmm. I am so fortunate and proud to represent the organization as a whole in my capacity. Well, obviously, we're grateful that you you do that, and for the other members too that volunteer their time. What is the term length on that? It's a ten. It's a five and five year. So by the time I am forty, if all things go right, I will move on to my next endeavor, which is a cool thing to think. By the time I'm forty, I could have served a whole term up here and think about the amazing things and stories and people and places we are going to impact. It's. At 32, you're like, wow, this is this could really be a cool journey to go on. And maybe I'll have yeah. a couple more dogs by the end, too. I have a feeling you might. <laughs> Waltons, what can I say? They are the ultimate online store for everything you need to prepare and cook your meat. From wild game to pork and beef, they've got you covered. Their tagline is everything but the meat for a reason. A few weeks ago, they launched a new website to make your online shopping experience even easier. Waltons.com has over 5,000 items on their site in stock and ready to ship the same day. I went to their site the other day to purchase jerky seasoning for my son's big old gobbler. I found the seasoning I wanted, plus barbecue sauce, a new thermometer, steak seasonings, gloves, and a handful of other items. There's so much to choose from. It's just incredible. From grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, seasonings, and so much more. They also host their own podcast called Meat Gistics and host live stream videos and chats to help you make the most of your cooking experience. Check them out at waltons.com. 
The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I talk about the Onyx Hunt app every week. That's simply because I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the land that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. If you've used it yourself, then you know that the Onyx app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state-owned land, federal lands, and walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in the fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx Maps give you, and these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. Being somebody who grew up in the field, just like I did, following dogs, watching, you know, hunting, just being out, uh, being a hunter growing up, uh, you know, and, and knowing, you know, this organization exists. And then ultimately you start getting your foot in the door and now where you are today, what is something about Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever that you've learned since taking on this really high level position in the organization that you never would have expected as somebody walking out in the field that just loves to hunt? The sheer size of the organization would be one. There's 400 plus employees at Pheasants Forever. I would have had no idea that there are that many people that work for Pheasants Forever, but also the incredible, effective, efficient processes that they do to put habitat on the ground. And now that I'm up here more, I read more, I stay very in tune to everything we're doing in each state. But the the ability to build habitat in different places, whether it's in South Carolina or Wyoming, is is just very impactful for me, but also awesome to see. Uh, in my professional life, I see us working with local partners all the time to build habitat, but to also see how this nonprofit space does it in such an incredible fashion is is, is something I wouldn't have guessed before. I mean, you could drive around and see Peasants Forever signs on properties and stuff, but the amount of work and effort it takes into building those spaces is, is uh, and, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to Bob St. Pierre about this a couple of times over the years, but I know a lot of properties in my region in Minnesota and then in other places that I've gone that are Pheasants Forever projects that don't have a Pheasants Forever sign on the project because you partner with state, uh, there's grants available and you know it ultimately becomes like a, a, like for Minnesota, for instance, it becomes a WMA a state WMA without people realizing all the work that pheasants forever and their members have put into creating this space. And I'm like, Bob, that's like a natural billboard for what you're doing. And he's like, I know, I know, but I, is that a challenge nationwide that you guys are working on so many projects, you're touching so many acres and people may not even know it. Yeah. I think that is a problem. Not 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 so much a problem, just a fault of being humble. And I, I I like to say it's maybe the and you can relate to this kind of the Minnesota nice thing. Like you do all these <laughs> great things, but then you don't tell anyone about them. And other folks around the country are like, "What does Pheasants Forever do?" And I, I think, man, I really wish they would advertise or promote some of those positive projects, so people who are outside this circle understand the devotion the organization has to building habitat because it, it's tough when something because of WMA or an open waters or a WEHA and you don't realize that 
but for Pheasants Forever, that property wouldn't be accessible to the public. I, mm-hmm. I'm not, and that's that's a balance that's tough to do because you don't want to be so in your face on everything. But it's also like we do great things as an organization. Signs or some sort of promotion should be out there to show their people that hey, these are your state, local, and federal partners along with Pheasants Forever that build these beautiful habitats in Minnesota and Kansas and South Carolina. And I think that's kind of a challenge for the organization to say, how do we effectively message that out without being so boisterous or in your face about it? And um, That'll be something we work on. Well, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I think of it like this. As a Pheasants Forever member, as a diehard pheasant hunter or whatever birds that I might be hunting, I feel like there's a sense of pride in knowing that the dollars that I'm putting into the organization, this is the result of it. So it gives mm-hmm. me a chance to say, heck yeah, I support that organization and here's why. Look at this. This wouldn't be here without it. So therefore, I think of any other members, it gives them the opportunity to kind of strut a little bit when they show up to that place and they know that their their dollars have gone into the ground. I, I don't think of it as maybe, um, I, I just don't think of it as boasting. I think of it as saying, yeah, we're your dollars. You guys have done this. You have done it. Other people have done it. Together, we've all done this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That should be a point of pride for our membership to see these millions of acres impacted all the time. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that messaging, and maybe we'll have to have a chat with Bob about this, about how we convey that message and make people comfortable about stating those facts and habitat built and and such. Sure, sure. Uh what challenges does the organization face today at a high level that you see that you that worry you moving forward? One of the big challenges are is always access to habitat and building more habitat. But mm-hmm. for me, aside from that main one, it's bringing on the next crop of conservationists, state wildlife biologists, and youth involved in this outdoor space. And I think that's that's a big thing. You have young children. I don't, but I, I can imagine they're incredibly busy little people. And I don't I don't know how come hang out with me for a week. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass. I'll take your dog and we'll switch for a week. <laughs> but really reaching that younger audience in turning them into conservationists, I think is a big challenge right now because there's so many things that and I just use distract usually, casually, distract from the mission of the Habitat organization. But there is a point of pride that I have right now, and I noticed this at Pheasant Fest when I sat on sat and looked at the panels, about how many different ways people have come into the outdoors aside from their father being a hunter. And to me, I think that's a positive thing to see, that you can be person who enjoys wild food or enjoys wild spaces or has a conservation initiative that brings you into this space aside from hunting. And I hope that we continue to promote those alternate avenues aside from your father teaching you hunting one one day and, and you being here to show that like we're not all the same, but together we can have such a greater impact on it. Because while there are plenty of hunters, I know there are plenty more conservations, conservationists in the country. And like I said, conservation is one of those initiatives that unite us. So 
finding more voices, finding more people and continuing to build those paths to the outdoors, I think is really important to really, to reaching that younger audience. Yeah, I agree. I, everything you stated there was spot on. I, I look at my young kids and we just, I talk about this all the time on this podcast that we just like to make it the outdoors, our normal way of life, a lifestyle. And my goal, my hope there is that when they, when my kids see, and I think I'm already seeing it in their eyes, you know, when they see a turkey strutting out in the field or pheasants, I mean, they get excited about it, but they, they're walking out there with us. Um, they, I have an appreciation for the animals and I think naturally they're going to have appreciation for understanding land. We've, um, we live in town and our town is growing just way too fast. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It breaks my heart sometimes, but we had this small plot of land that we did not own. Uh, it was an old farmer that owned this land and it kind of butted up to our backyard and there's a wetland in our neighborhood and it recently sold to a developer that's putting up this uh, 150 unit townhome complex. And they just started bulldozing trees a couple of weeks ago and our kids just stared at it and they just didn't understand why. And I think the walks that we've had in the woods and then just for them to see the land disappear, the trees, uh, I think one of my boys said something like, well, where, where are those deer going to go then? And, you know, he's already thinking about that as an eight-year-old trying to wrap his head around the fact that they they don't have somewhere else to go now. They will find a different place to go, but they will never be wildlife living there ever again, you know. And they're smart. Kids are smart. When they're given the opportunity to experience things on their own, it allows them to learn on their own and see things for themselves and care about things for themselves. And so that's always my goal is just to bring people out there to let them see it. They can ask questions and they can ultimately decide for themselves if this is something they care about and want to do it. But if they've never been given the chance, I can't expect somebody to care. And I think yeah. that goes for a lot of those people that live in in city limits that don't necessarily take the time to go on those walks out in the field that you might, uh, that I might. And you know, certainly carrying a shotgun adds to the enjoyment of it, but just being out there is such a powerful thing. And, um, I, I guess maybe we just, we, we leave it at that Douglas. I don't know. Is, is there anything you, you care to add for people to maybe knowing what you know now serving in the role that you serve, um, things that we can do, anybody listening to this right now can do that ultimately will have an impact on the greater good for, for wild places in this country. Yeah. And I think that starts with being a member of these conservation organizations like Pheasants Forever or any of them, Ducks Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. But I know another part of that is, so you have the ability to take your children out there, but like in Chicago or other heavily populated areas, some of those kids don't have that mentor or parent parental figure to be able to do that. And building pathways to allow children that wouldn't necessarily have that ability to go out there is important. And that's when when we talk about what Darrell's doing, that's what kind of what he's building is he's going to these big, heavily populated areas and building pathways to get those kids outdoor. And when I hear your story about you and your sons, I think that 
that moment when they that your boy asks you what's going to happen to that deer, I think that might one day manifest itself into making him a lifelong conservationist. And that's the goal here. So being able to bring other children who might not have the access that your sons do out into these spaces to give them that moment of inflection and alter their path is is vital to continuing this mission. We have to let people, children, enjoy these wild spaces because that's how you bring them in. I mean, how many of us have had this memorable moment as a 12-year-old, 15-year-old child hunting with our parents or mentors and now our lifelong parents are lifelong hunters? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. that, that's got to happen for those because there's millions of people in these urban areas that don't necessarily have that opportunity. And through work like what Darrell's doing and what PF is doing and partnering with his Minority Outdoor Alliance, that is important. And I'll give you one quick anecdote. When I was in Chicago... I volunteered for an organization and I brought Shunka there when she was six months old. And a lot of the kids at this organization were incredibly scared of little Shunka at six months old. And to me, I was like, how is a child scared of a six month old black lab? That seems absurd. Who, who, who would think that? But in different communities, dogs are looked at differently and, and the environment's different. And that moment still remains with me because it's like, you need to expose, if we want to bring in these younger audiences, you need to expose them to positive experiences with bird dogs, the environment, habitat, and conservation organizations. I think that's where we're going, but it's building those pathways too. So I hope this these initiatives continue and become successful because there's lots of people out there in those cities that don't necessarily have these opportunities. And to give them those opportunities, I think, is vital to our success in the conservation mission. I 100% agree. I think too, you know, a lot of times we say, oh, I'm going to go and do this training. I'm working with my dog. I'm doing it one-on-one. Um, and I'm, I will bring that person or that kid or that friend of mine out when it's time to go hunting, when we've got a good spot and things should line up. But I, I just think we're missing out on an opportunity to bring them along out in the training during the summer. You know, it's, it's being in the grass, being out in nature, being in those spaces to just kind of be a sponge, you know, so we don't have to wait till hunting season to take somebody out there, bring a friend along. There's something cool about a dog that's trained or well-trained or that's learning that people can watch and they don't have to be a hunter to appreciate it. It just, it leaves an impact and leaves them a lot of times wanting more. So maybe that's a, a, a summer call to action right there. Yeah. And I think through some of our initiatives, the pollinator initiatives and planting of grass, but also, you know, I think there's plenty of state organizations that have this, like get someone outdoors or bring someone new into hunting and have these raffles. And I like, I really like those initiatives because it promotes this idea that if I bring someone out, they too will fall in love. And now that's not, that's not always the case, but the idea I think should bear fruit one day. Yeah. You're planting seeds. So that's what we do here. We're planting seeds. What do you have on your fall agenda for your hunting this year? I I went to Montana for the first time last year, and that was an incredible, incredible experience. But what what is what do you guys have going on this this fall and winter? Um, <clears throat> I can't leak that information oh. just yet. Right. We can <laughs> no, edit that I, question out then. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> we it's a good question actually, and maybe I should even 
take that a step further. We are still uh, in the planning process. Um, we have TV shows that are just getting ready to ship out of our production studio in the coming days. Our new season of The Flesh is going to start airing the first week in July on the Outdoor Channel. And I always think of it as like, okay, whew, I take a deep breath. We did it. We got our season out the door. <sighs> okay, now I'm going to start planning for the next season. And we go hunting with people, members of Pheasants Forever, non-members, hunters, uh, you name it, all kinds of people from different parts of North America and you know other countries have even sent us invites to go to Europe, South America, and stuff like that. We just We take all of the ideas and then we break it down because it's a short couple months season and we say where can we be and how can we do this and and we just kind of line up our season so it's it's still tbd i guess on where we're going to be and when but there's a lot of places that we want to go we try to cover all over the country um i'm really looking for uh, hunt in the northeast corner of the country, Maine, perhaps. Um, obviously, I love Montana. You know why after going there last year. North Dakota is always a must on my list. So um, we will be venturing across the Midwest, but we will be, we will be branching out as well. So Douglas, if you've got an idea, let's hear it. Right now? Yeah. Yeah, you ought to come to one of the core properties. I mean, there's tons of these lakes here around here and in other states too. And that'd be cool to show your audience these massive flood control trucks control structures, which in 2019, two years ago, really impacted the Great Plains. But seeing the habitat and the core's ability to build these effective flood control structures would be would be cool. I think um, there's good hunting, great turkey hunting, great deer hunting, really nice waterfowl hunting because you're in these great flyways. Mm-hmm. I, I think it'd be cool for you guys to come out and do something. It doesn't have to be with one of the cores in the Kansas City district, but the projects are pretty nice. I mean, there's lots of conservation organizations that part with, partner with us, as well as the state and local partners. And I, I love them. Whenever I talk to someone, I say, oh, here's a couple of pins at this project if you want to check out this early teal season in Kansas or something. So, Yeah, we've, we've filmed a, a few different shows over the past 10 years on the Missouri River Army Corps lands in North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, places that we've driven to by boat. Mm. I mean, like, I just love those kind of adventures. I really do. Uh, you know, just showing different places that, that you can go and the response we've gotten from those. I got to be honest, it's, it's a little overwhelming. Uh, a lot of people, they want those pins that you just did, you give out. They want those pins on where, like, where do I go to do that? Uh, and just, you know, that that is definitely uh, an idea that we, I don't share the pins, uh, first of all, but I do say that this opportunity does exist and we've shown you and you can go out and find it, um, you know, and leave it at that. But uh, no, I I like that idea, Douglas. I definitely do. And I think that's just a good call for anybody listening right now. If you've got a cool idea you think might be, might make for a great television show, you can send it to us. Uh, We're, we're going to be planning here in the coming weeks and we throw all the ideas together. And then we, as a team, talk through them and figure out what makes the most sense. So uh, you have to put up with a camera following your every move and every miss. You just have to know that going into it. And they almost all the misses make it on TV, which then in turn 
makes me look like a below average hunter, but that's okay. I always tell people I do that to make them look better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a nice public land thing. I like when I lived in Chicago, they had those draw systems out there for waterfowl and that's an incredibly competitive space to public land hunt. But then I I come out here and look at these 16,000 plus acre lake flood projects and I could be out there by myself shooting or chasing teal or quail and such. And it's like, this, this is pretty cool. Um, Cause I, I mean, you and I are both aware of this pressure that a lot of these public spaces see out mm-hmm. West and out East, but here in the Plains, besides from a few big, big popular ones, a lot of them don't receive that much pressure. And there's some incredible wildlife building out there too. So it's nice to just show that progress and show how these federal state and local governments along with their conservation partners, have contributed to building more habitat. Love it. Love the idea. Well, Douglas, we're out of time today. I just want to say thank you for all of the work that you're doing on behalf of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, but just being a positive role model, it's it's needed. Um, every, every positive role model makes a difference in this world, so thank you for being one of them and taking some time out of your day today. Um, means a lot. Yep. Thank you for having me. It's an enjoyable conversation. Well, we got to do it again sometime. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure who we will be interviewing next week, but I've got a couple people in mind that I think might be uh, interesting. And hopefully you as listeners enjoy having them or enjoy listening to them. If you have topics or guest ideas for us, send them on over. We want to hear about it. Uh, You can find us on theflush.com. TV. That's our website. Otherwise, just on Instagram or Facebook. If you search The Flush, you're going to find us. And if you send a message, it will come to me at some some way, somehow. I love hearing all of the feedback, the ideas that you're sending. So keep them coming and we'll keep putting shows out there. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank, reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. <laughs>